You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 15. The 2 Kings, chapter 15. Uh, we're, we're currently studying in our series right now called Desiring the Kingdom. We've been studying through the books of First and Second Kings. It's what we like to do here at Whitefields is we like to study uh, through books of the Bible. And this has been a long study. It's been a study of a passage that I think is often overlooked and, and skipped by people as they read the Bible or by churches as they teach the Bible. But as we've seen, there are some really, really important stories. And today we come to one of the most important stories, which we're going to see is really relevant for our lives. We're going to see the end this week of the kingdom of Israel. We're going to talk about how that took place, but it's really important. So would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray as we get into our study of God's word. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you desire to speak to us. And Lord, in the same way, we desire to hear from you. Lord, we desire to know you in spirit, to be in relationship with you. We desire to worship you in truth, Lord. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would guide us into all truth as we study your word. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me ask you a question. Uh, what kinds of people do you tend to seek out as, as friends, as people who you spend your time with? Who are the people you seek out as friends? You know, there's a saying that goes, maybe, maybe you've heard of the saying, the saying goes like this, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And the point of that saying is to say this, that relationships are very powerful and very important in shaping who we become for the future. Which is why it's so interesting, isn't it? When you look at Jesus and the kind of people that he sought to spend his time with. Because for the most part, to put it, to put it simply, he kind of spent his time with, with a bunch of losers, didn't he? I mean, really. Uh, think about it. If you were Jesus' mom, right? Like, and you're looking at who your son is spending his time with as a young man, you know, 30 years old. And he's hanging out with prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners, and a bunch of fishermen. You might be a little worried. Jesus, you know, hey, maybe, maybe uh, spend some time with some other people, you know, who are really going somewhere. Why do you spend your time with these people who are kind of losers, right? He, he, mom might have been a little bit worried when she saw the people that Jesus was hanging out with because, as the saying goes, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And here's Jesus, and he's seeking out the kinds of people that nobody else wants to hang out with. But here's what happened. Rather than those people dragging Jesus down, instead what happened is that those people's lives were transformed for the better as they spent time with Jesus. So this phrase, show me your friends and I'll show you your future, it takes on a whole new meaning. When you enter into a relationship with Jesus, a friendship with God through Jesus, it takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? Having a relationship with God through Jesus changes your destiny and transforms your future. The title of today's message is In Spirit and in Truth. And here's what we're going to see in our study today. Here's our, our one-sentence summary of today's message, which is also going to function as our outline and our guide for as we study this passage. Are you ready for it? Here it is. Write it down. Memorize it. Take it with you as you go today. God is seeking people like us with a history of sin and animosity to worship him in spirit and in truth. Let me say it one more time. God is seeking people like us 
with a history of sin and animosity to worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's take that sentence. Let's break it down as we walk through our, our passage today. First of all, God is seeking. That's the first thing we know. God is seeking. In the Gospel of John, chapter 4, we read about a time when Jesus and his disciples were traveling from Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, up to the region of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, which is where they had their home base. It's where most of his disciples were from, and it's where their ministry was based. Now, in order to go from Jerusalem up to Galilee, Jerusalem in the south, Galilee in the north, they had to pass through a region. We read called Samaria. Now, just stop right there. That sounds pretty straightforward, right? We've got, a, we've got a map here to kind of show you what that was like. You'll see there, Jerusalem and Judea is in the south. Galilee's in the north, and right in between them is Samaria. So you say, yeah, makes sense. You got to go through Samaria to get to Galilee. Except it wasn't quite that simple. Even though the, the most direct route from Jerusalem to Galilee passed through Samaria, no self-respecting Jewish person would ever be caught dead in Samaria. You see, instead what they would do is, and if you look at that map, here's what they would do. They would cross the Jordan River and enter into another country, the region of Perea, and they would travel on that east side of the Jordan River, and they would travel up north to get to Galilee in order to avoid going through Samaria. They would do anything they could to avoid going through Samaria. So understand this. When we read here in John chapter 4 that Jesus and his disciples are traveling up to Galilee, and it says that they traveled through Samaria, that should surprise you. Understand, if you were a Jewish person reading this back in the first century when this was first released, you would have read this and you would have been shocked. You would have said to yourself, wait a second, what's Jesus doing in Samaria? Why didn't he cross the river and take the, the normal route up to Galilee but in, through the region of Perea? Why, why is he going through Samaria? Well, there was a reason why Jesus took this unusual route. And the reason was because there was something in Samaria that Jesus was seeking, that he was looking for. You know, something we learn about God as we read through the Bible is that God is not passive, right? He's not a, a passive God who just sits by idly, hoping that things work out, you know, wringing his hands and, and waiting for us to find him maybe. No, we see throughout the Bible that God is an active God who actively seeks, who pursues, who initiates. So what is it that God is seeking? And what is Jesus seeking here in Samaria? Well, that brings us to the next part of our sentence, that God is seeking people. God is seeking people. We read in the Bible that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Let me ask you, what is it that God loved about the world? Did he love mountains and sunsets and flowers and kittens? Is that why Jesus came into the world? No. No, the reason he came into the world, he said, why? So that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. It's talking about people. God's love for the world is directed towards people. And God's mission in the world, Jesus tells us, the reason he came is because God is seeking to save those who are lost. Seeking to save those who are lost. So the reason why Jesus is going to Samaria, this place that nobody else wants to go to, the place that everybody avoids, the reason he's going to Samaria is because he's seeking people. Because God is seeking people. Now, you might ask, well, Nick, aren't there people everywhere? 
I mean, he could have literally gone anywhere, right? And found some people. If he's just seeking people, then why did he have to go to Samaria? And the answer to that is that by going to Samaria, Jesus was seeking out a certain kind of people. And that brings us to the next part of our sentence. God is seeking people. You know what kind of people he's seeking? He's seeking people like us, like us. And what, what kind of people are we? People with a history of sin and animosity. That's why Jesus went to Samaria, because God is seeking people who are just like us, people who have a history of sin and animosity. Listen, every one of us, we have a story, don't we? We have a backstory. We have, we have a past. And there are probably things in your past that you're proud of, that you're, you know, you're, you're happy to share with others. And there are probably other things in your past that you are not so proud of, right? Stories of sin, stories of, of falling short, uh, stories of things which, which you shouldn't have done and you know it. Well, listen, the same was true of the Samaritans and the people who lived there in Samaria. And the reason why the Jewish people didn't want to have anything to do with the people of Samaria, where they would even cross the river and travel through a different country in order to go up north so that they wouldn't pass through them. The reason the Jewish people didn't want anything to do with the Samaritans had to do with their history. And in order to understand their history, we need to understand what it says in 2 Kings chapters 15 through 17. So turn with me, if you will, to 2 Kings chapter 15. And over the next few minutes, I want to walk you through these chapters, chapters 15 through 17, because they're really important in Israel's history. And they're important for understanding what we read there in John chapter 4, where Jesus passes through Samaria. Now remember, just a kind of refresher on where we're at. The books of First and Second Kings, they're telling us about a time before Jesus was born when Israel was divided into two kingdoms. The southern kingdom, where Jerusalem was located, was called the Kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom, which is where Samaria was located, was called the Kingdom of Israel. Now, 2 Kings chapter 15 tells us about a period in, in history during which Judah, the southern kingdom where Jerusalem was, had two kings during this time. But during this time, Israel had five kings. Let me just tell you a little bit about this. The first king of Judah we're told about there in chapter 15 is a king named Azariah. Now, you've probably heard of King Azariah if you've, if you've read the Bible, but maybe you don't realize that you've heard of him because he's also known by another name in other parts of the Bible. And even here in 2 Kings, it changes the, the spelling and the pronunciation of his name. He's also known by the name Uzziah. Uzziah. So if you've heard of King Uzziah, who we talked about him just a couple weeks ago, actually, when we studied the, the book of Isaiah, but Azariah is better known as King Uzziah. Now, Uzziah, we read there in verse 2 of chapter 15, he became king when he was 16 years old, and he ruled in Judah for 52 years. That's not quite King, Queen Elizabeth II, but it's pretty good, right? 52 years. Now, we're told there in, in verse 3 that Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So overall, he was a pretty good king. And we know that the, the kingdom, the reign of Uzziah was a time of prosperity and strength for the kingdom of Judah. You know, we're told a lot more about the reign of King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. So if you're looking for something to read later on, check it out, write it down. 2 Chronicles 26, you can read more about the reign of King Uzziah. But notice what it says in 2 Kings 15 verse 5 about Uzziah. It tells us something interesting. It says, the Lord touched King Uzziah and made him a leper 
until the day of his death. Well, that's a little weird, isn't it, right? Like God made this guy a leper. Why would God make someone a leper? Well, the story is told in, in greater detail in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 about why this happened, why God struck him with leprosy. Here's what it says. In 2 Chronicles 26, starting in verse 16, it says that when Uzziah became strong, he grew proud to his own destruction. Now, I want, I want you to take that to heart and really consider that. That should be a great warning for all of us. When Uzziah became strong, he became proud to his own destruction. And here's what he did. It says that he was unfaithful to the Lord, and he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar. Now, maybe you say, hey, I'm, I'm not really into incense, but... That seems like a pretty cool thing to do, right? Going to the temple, burning some incense. Sounds pretty awesome, except it wasn't. You know why it wasn't awesome? Because the Old Testament law forbade kings from acting as priests. There was a distinction between what kings were allowed to do and what priests were allowed to do. And one of the things that was very clear was that kings were not allowed to act as priests. Now, there was a reason for that. We actually talked about this uh, in December when we were talking about our study through Advent. And the reason had to do with the fact that kings and priests uniquely foreshadowed different aspects of who the coming Messiah, the coming king and priest, would be. But Uzziah, right, he, he after all of the success that he experienced, after all of his international fame that we read about in 2 Chronicles 26, we see that he became proud. And in his pride, he decided that in addition to being king, he was going to make himself a priest, and so he entered into the temple to burn incense and act as a priest. And we read there this dramatic story there in 2 Chronicles 26 about what happened. The high priest, he, he blocked the entryway to the temple. And he said, no, Uzziah, you can't come in. And then all these other priests, 80 priests in total, they come around and they tried to stop the king from entering into the temple and acting as a priest and lighting the incense. But it says there that Uzziah, he's holding this thing called a censer, which is like a, a big, hot piece of metal. The end of the metal is burning hot, and that's what he's going to use to light the incense. Well, he takes this, like, poker, right? Like, this burning hot poker, and he starts, like, threatening the priests with it and, and going after them. And it says that when he did that, God struck him in that moment with leprosy, and he had leprosy until the day that he died. Now, this is important because our theme that we're talking about, right, is worshiping God in spirit and in truth. What does it mean to worship God in spirit and in truth? You know, I think this is an important topic for us today because we live in a society and a culture where, where people like to say things like, I, I, I worship God, I'm, I'm into God and everything, but I don't like organized religion. Have you guys ever heard that one? I, I like that one because I always like to ask in response, well, what, do you, what do you like instead, right? You just prefer disorganized religion? Is that better than organized religion? Uh, you know, just uh, willy-nilly, anything goes. You know, it's like, uh, you know, people will say a lot of times, well, I have my own way of worshiping God. Listen, we live in a society where we don't like rules, right? We don't like people telling us what we can do and what we can't do. But I want you to see this here with King Uzziah. That God has set parameters on certain things. He has given instructions about other things. And the sin of Uzziah was that he disregarded the instructions and the boundaries that God had clearly given. And he insisted on doing what he wanted to do 
instead of what God had told him to do. He, rather than humbling himself before God and surrendering his will to the will of God, Uzziah decided he was going to do whatever he wanted. And as a result, Uzziah was on the receiving end of God's judgment. You see, part of worshiping God in spirit and in truth involves honoring God by submitting ourselves to his will and to his word. Well, Uzziah's long reign of 52 years in Judah, we read that during that time that Uzziah reigned in Judah as one king, during that time, Israel had five different kings. If you look there in verse 8, you'll see that Zechariah ruled for only eight months. The next king, King Shalom, he ruled for only one month. The next king, Pekahiah, he ruled for just two years. Now, the other two kings, they ruled for a little bit longer, 10 years and 20 years, respectively. But understand this. Why was there so much turnover in the kings of Israel? Well, the reason was because the kings of Israel at this time were exceedingly wicked people, and they kept being assassinated by other people in their staffs, and then people around them would assassinate them because they were that wicked that people would step in and kill them. Then, then they'd put themselves up as king, and then they'd get killed too. It was just a total mess going on there in the kingdom of Israel. But there's something really important for you to notice in chapter 15, verse 19. Don't miss this. Here's what it says. It says that during the reign of King Menahem, the Assyrians came and they put Israel under tribute. Now what that means is that at this time, Israel essentially lost their sovereignty as a nation. They became what we call a vassal state, or you might call it a, a puppet state, controlled by Assyria. You can think about it like this. Imagine if you're at school and there's a bully at school and the bully comes up to you and says, hey, listen, I'm going to pound your face in. But if you give me your lunch money and do my math homework, I won't pound your face in. And you say, okay, here's my lunch money, and, here, and let me do your math for you, right? And they says, okay, I won't beat you up. As long as you continue giving me your lunch money every day and doing my homework, I won't beat you up. Well, that's essentially what Assyria did to Israel. Assyria at this time had become very powerful. And they came to Israel, and they said, hey, give us your lunch money, or else we're going to invade you. And so Israel said, okay, hey, don't invade us. And they, paid, they began paying taxes to Assyria. And it meant that Assyria controlled the affairs of Israel. They did what uh, Assyria told them to do. And so here comes uh, Israel. And, and I just think you have to look at this and say, isn't this sad? Because the reason why King Menahem did this is clearly because he thought that Israel didn't stand a chance in a war against Assyria. And you know what? He was probably right. But you know why this is so sad? Is because if you guys have read the Old Testament, you know what it's full of? It's full of stories of how God rescued Israel when they were completely outnumbered. When, when they were in battles where they should have, they had no business being in that battle. They stood no chance at all. And yet they would seek the Lord and depend on him. And he would fight the battle for them. He would rescue them. He would save them in, in miraculous ways. I mean, do you guys remember what happened with the Exodus? They were slaves. They didn't even have any weapons. And yet God set them free against the largest army in the world. Do you remember how God saved them from the Philistines? How God saved them from the Midianites? They were always outnumbered. But let's just put it this way. Uh, by the time of King Menahem, the kings of Israel weren't big Bible readers, okay? Like they weren't, uh, they weren't doing a Bible reading plan like ever, right? They, they weren't reading the Bible anymore. They had turned away from the Lord so much that they had forgotten this, this history of how God had saved them throughout the years. And so when Assyria comes and threatens them, 
rather than turning to the Lord, rather than clinging to God's promises to them as a nation, rather than seeking the Lord and trusting him for how he's going to save them and rescue them, we see that Menahem, he just lays down, he hands over the keys of Israel to Assyria and says, here you go. And I think there's a spiritual parallel for our lives. You know, when you're facing temptation, when the enemy of your soul, Satan, is coming after you with lies and temptations, trying to bring you down, you can resist, right? That's what we're told to do. We're told, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But there are times when you feel like, you know what, I'm just no match for this. I don't have the strength right now to resist this temptation. I don't have the strength to do what God's calling me to do or be what God's calling me to be. So I'm just going to lay down and submit and, and give in to the temptation and, and what the enemy wants me to do. But you know what the good news is? The good news is you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. You can turn to the Lord in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your temptations. And we have a promise from God, multiple promises from God in his word, that his spirit will strengthen you to stand against those temptations as you walk with him. You may indeed lack the strength, just as Israel oftentimes lacked the strength for the battles that they faced to stand against their enemies. But even if you lack the strength, as you take God's hand and walk with him, as you trust in him, as you cling to his promises, he promises to give you his strength, which is more than sufficient for what you need for the things that you face in your life. Well, sadly, Menahem did not turn to the Lord, and he submitted to the power of Assyria. Well, in 2 Kings chapter 16 now, we read about Ahaz. Ahaz is the king of Judah. Now, one of the things you'll notice as you read through 1 and 2 Kings is that uh, when you read about the kingdom of Judah, you'll notice that they had some good kings and some bad kings. But when you read about the kingdom of Israel, there were zero good kings, only evil, bad kings. Well, Ahaz is a king of Judah, but he's not a good king. In fact, it tells us there in chapter 16, verse 3, that Ahaz, king of Judah, walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. What does that mean, to walk in the ways of king of Israel? It means that he practiced idolatry and paganism. In fact, it tells us that he, he practiced so much idolatry and paganism, in fact, that verse 3 tells us that he even burned his son on a pagan altar to pagan gods. What they would do in those days to gods like Baal and specifically the god Molech is that people would offer literally their firstborn child as a, as a living human sacrifice to die on the altar to a pagan god. Now you might wonder, why in the world would anyone do that? Why would you worship a god that requires you to give up your firstborn child or to, to kill your children or shed your own blood? There's a very simple and good reason for it. The reason is because the, the draw to paganism for these people is that whereas the God of Israel said, I am a sovereign God, I do whatever I want, and you can get on board with what I'm doing, the draw of paganism is that it essentially promised that if you do the right things and make the right sacrifices, you can get whatever you want. You want to be successful? There's a sacrifice for that. You, you want rain? There's a sacrifice for that. You want money, power, anything. There's a sacrifice for that. In other words, it, the draw of it was that it allowed you to take control and manipulate the gods, whereas the God of Israel said, hey, hey, I can't be manipulated. I, I'm God in heaven, and I do whatever I want, and you can get on board with it. 
right? And so the draw of paganism was always that. And so the, the god Molech, for example, he promised that if you would sacrifice your firstborn child, in return, he would make you successful and prosperous. So these people were literally sacrificing their children on the altar of success. Well, during the reign of this evil king, Ahaz, we're told in, in chapter 16, verse 5, that Israel, that's the northern kingdom, teamed up with Syria. Now, keep in mind, that's different than Assyria. So Israel and Syria team up, and they attacked Jerusalem. Now, remember, Ahaz is king of Judah. That's where Jerusalem is at. So he's getting attacked by the northern kingdom and by Syria. So what does he do? He goes to the Assyrians, right? They're like the tough guy, the bully in the neighborhood. They go to the Assyrians, and he says, hey, Assyrians, would you please help protect us in Jerusalem against Judah, or sorry, against Israel and Syria? And the Assyrians said, maybe, what are you going to do for us to make it worth our while? And so we read there that King Ahaz, if you go down, you see in verse 8, that Ahaz gave away to the Assyrians all the gold from the temple in Jerusalem and all of the treasures of his own palace and his own house. So, so the people of God, no, notice what's happening. Both Israel and Judah, they are giving away everything to the Assyrians. Everything they have is given away to the Assyrians. They've already given their souls away to these pagan idols, and now they're handing everything else over as well. Notice this. It says in chapter 16, verses 10 through 18, it says that King Ahaz, when he went to Assyria, he so much wanted to please the king of Assyria that he changed the temple in Jerusalem to be more like the pagan temples of Assyria. He changed the temple in Jerusalem to resemble the pagan temples of Assyria. Do you see what's happening? This is such a warning for you and me as Christians in the world today. Rather than embracing who God had called them to be, rather than worshiping God in spirit and in truth, we see that both Israel and Judah, we see them conforming to the world, wanting to be accepted and please the world and, just, and becoming just like all the other nations around them, even to the point of transforming the temple to make it more like the pagan temples of Assyria. Well, finally, that brings us to chapter 17. And in chapter 17, we read about a king of Israel named Hosea. And you know why Hosea is important? Because he is the last king who will ever reign over the kingdom of Israel. The very last king of Israel. We read about how this happened in, in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 17. Basically, here's what happened. You remember Hosea, the, the people of Israel are under tribute to Assyria, which means that Assyria is the bully, right? That shows up and says, give me your lunch money and do my math homework. And they've been saying, yes. Well, Hosea says, maybe I can find a better deal somewhere else. I'll find another bully to fight that bully, and, and I'll give him my lunch money instead because at least he lets me keep some of it, right? So he goes down and he tries to make an alliance with Egypt kind of switching masters, switching from Assyria to Egypt. Well, the Assyrians don't like that because now they're not getting the, the lunch money. They're not having their math homework done anymore. So what does Assyria do when, when Israel tries to switch alliances and be aligned with Egypt instead? It says that they besieged Samaria for three years. And then it says, finally, they conquered Samaria in verse 6, and they carried the Israelites away into captivity in Assyria. And understand, just like that, the northern kingdom of Israel no longer exists. It's gone. 
Every week I've been telling you. At this time, Israel was divided into two nations, Judah in the south and Israel in the north. Well, I'm not going to tell you that again. You know why? Because the northern kingdom doesn't exist anymore. It's gone, and it will never come back. It has disappeared from history, never to return. Most of the population, we read, was removed forcibly from their homes and forcibly relocated to Assyria. This is a tactic that was used in the ancient world. In fact, this was even used after World War II to, to, to change regions in Europe, right? Because uh, they wanted to claim lands for certain countries, and so they would forcibly relocate people. Well, this is what happened here as well. Uh, Assyria wanted to take this land, and they didn't want these people ever rising up again, so they destroyed the country by forcibly relocating the people. Now listen, understand, the, the people who were carried away, the, the Jewish people from the northern kingdom, most of them assimilated into Assyrian society, and they lost their Jewish identity. They just became Assyrians in language, in culture, in religion, in every way. But not all of them. So keep that in mind. Not all of them. Some of the Jewish people from the northern kingdom who were taken to Assyria, they held on to their identity and their faith even in Assyria. Now we know this because some of the Old Testament prophets talk about it. And they talk about this promise of God that one day he is going to re reunite those who were taken captive to Assyria and those who were taken captive from the southern kingdom. He's going to reunite them and bring them back to the land of Israel. And eventually that did happen. It took 200 years and it took a lot of pain and hardship, which we'll talk about in coming weeks. But they were eventually able, those who remained faithful to the Lord, were able to, to survive this exile and return to the land. So sometimes you'll hear people talk about the 10 lost tribes of Israel. I, want you to, I just want to tell you that's not exactly true. That's not really accurate. We don't have 10 lost tribes. In fact, we know exactly where they were. It actually tells you in that verse the cities where they were taken to and where they lived. The tribes didn't get lost. Many of them assimilated into Assyrian society, but there was a believing remnant that refused to assimilate, who remained faithful to the Lord, who clung to their identity as the people of God, and they eventually were able to return. But just know this, for that faithful remnant, the exile in Assyria was very hard. It was very painful, and yet God used it for their good. God used it for their good. Listen, this is a recurring theme throughout the Bible that God is dedicated to his people and those who cling to him. Even though you may go through hard things, he will use those hard things. Not only will he see you through, but he will redeem those difficulties for your good and for his glory. Listen, in order for these people to remain faithful to the Lord in Assyria, they couldn't compromise. They had to fight for it. They had to get rid of any semblance of idolatry that still existed in their hearts. They couldn't be half-hearted. They had to fight for, for their faith, for the, for the ability to survive in that pagan culture in Assyria. They had to be sold out for the Lord and committed to seeking him and following him. Just think about a fish that, that's always swimming upstream as opposed to a fish that's like a bottom feeder, right? Think about the, the meat of those fish. The fish that's always swimming against the stream, they become lean and they become strong. The same thing happens when you face opposition in your faith. You know what? You need some opposition in your faith. If you're not experiencing it, let me just tell you, in order for your faith to be healthy and strong, you need some pushback. You need some opposition. You need some, some people around you who don't believe and think the way that you think. 
You see, if you're in an environment where following Jesus and walking with God means that you have to go against the flow, against the grain of where everybody's trying to, to push you, what will happen is, as a result, your faith will become leaner and it will become stronger. Remember it like this. Any dead fish can go with the flow. Going with the flow, you could be a completely dead fish and you can go downstream the way that everything's pushing you to go. But it takes a live one to swim against the current. And I want to encourage you, don't be a dead fish. Be a live one. Don't, don't just go with the flow and assimilate into the culture around you. Be willing to follow Jesus, even if it means going against the flow. You know, faith is like a muscle. In order for it to grow, in order for it to stay strong, not only do you have to use it, but resistance helps it to grow and get stronger. But listen, it, it brings us back to this question. So the Jewish people from northern, the northern king of Israel, they were carried off into exile in Syria, in, in Assyria. So in the time of Jesus, who were the people who lived in Samaria? Well, we read about that in verse 24. We read this, that, that not only did the king of Assyria remove the Jewish people from Samaria, but it says that he repopulated this area, Samaria, with people from Assyria, from these places that are listed here. And it says they took possession of Samaria and they lived in its cities. So he repopulated Samaria with people from Assyria. We're told in verse 29 that these people, they brought with them their own gods and they set up altars to their gods there in Samaria. And we read there that this greatly displeased the Lord. And so he brought judgment against these people for bringing in these foreign gods. And so check out what happens in chapter 17, verse 27. This is important for what happens later with Jesus. It says that the king of Assyria saw this judgment that God had brought against the people for, for worshiping these pagan gods. And so he thought, we need to get a Jewish priest in here to teach these new inhabitants of Samaria, even though they're not Jews, but to teach them about the God of this land so that they'll, they'll follow him and they won't incur more judgment against themselves. So he sends to Assyria to bring back one of the Jewish priests who had been taken into exile. So they bring back a priest. Now remember, the priests of the northern kingdom, they were completely compromised. They were completely compromised. So they bring back this compromised priest, and he teaches these non-Jewish people who now live in their cities in Samaria about the God of Israel and how to worship him. And if you'll notice, at the end of the chapter, the very last verse, it says that the people feared the Lord, God, Yahweh, but they still worshiped their own idols. See, what happened, what that's telling us, is that what was created was this kind of weird mixture of Judaism and different pagan religions, right? So this mix of, of weird Judaism mixed with all kinds of pagan religions. It's something we call syncretism. It's this mix. So now come back with me to the time of Jesus in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. Remember, the reason why the Jews didn't like the Samaritans is because of what we just read in their history in chapters 15 through 17 of 2 Kings. The, the Samaritans were not ethnically Jewish, and they had their own different religion, which was kind of like Judaism, but it was weird and it was different. Uh, for example, the Samaritans built their own temple on a mountain in Samaria called Mount Gerizim, and they, they 
believed in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they believed in those books as Holy Scripture, but they changed a bunch of the stories. And how they changed the stories is actually is really interesting and kind of funny. For example, in the Samaritan version, the Garden of Eden was on Mount Gerizim. Uh, Noah's Ark landed on Mount Gerizim. When, when Abraham was called to sacrifice his son, guess where he went? Mount Gerizim. Of course he did. So to the Jewish people, the Samaritans were, first of all, not Jews. And secondly, they were heretics. They were heretics. The Jewish people didn't want anything to do with them. And to make matters worse, on at least two occasions, the Samaritans had joined other countries in attacking Israel. And so here is Jesus. And he chooses to go to Samaria this place that nobody else wants to go to, this land of heretics and sinners, this place that everybody's like, ew, Samaria, no thanks. I'd rather go literally anywhere else. But he goes there. Why? Because God is seeking people. What kind of people? People like us. What do I mean by that? The Samaritans had a history of sin and animosity. And you know what? So do we. That's who we are as well. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as a result of our sin and our rebellion against God, we have set ourselves at enmity with God and with people. But the message of the gospel is that Jesus came because God is seeking people like us. So that rather than receiving judgment, we might become recipients of his grace. Rather than being lost and at enmity with God, we might enter into a transforming relationship with him and worship him in spirit and in truth. And that brings us to the last part of our sentence. God is seeking people like us with a history of sin and animosity to worship him in spirit and in truth. So come back with me to John chapter 4. Jesus is traveling through Samaria, and he stops at a town. Outside this town, there was a well. So Jesus sits down at this well. It tells us it was the sixth hour of the day, which means that it was noon, the hottest part of the day in the Middle East, right? It's a, it's a hot place, and this is the hottest part of the day. His disciples go into town to buy food and supplies, and as Jesus is sitting there by himself at this well, a woman, a Samaritan woman, comes to gather water. That sounds pretty normal, right? Except it's not. It's not normal. You know why it's not normal? A, a few reasons. First of all, we know that in that culture, women did not gather water in the hot part of the day. Rather, they would kind of hunker down in the hot part of the day. They would gather water in the mornings and the evenings when it was cooler out. Also, we know that gathering water was a communal activity. So ladies of the community would go together. They would help each other pull up the bucket, right, from, from the well. They would help each other carry the water. And also, there's protection in numbers. And so by being together, they were protected from any bandits or anyone else who might, might attack out there on the edge of town. So here's this woman. She's gathering water alone in the middle of the day. And what that tells us is that this woman was an outcast. As the story goes on, we find out why she was an outcast. She was an outcast because she was an immoral woman. The other women in town didn't want anything to do with her because she had a bad reputation and she completely earned it and deserved it. So here's Jesus, and he's come to Samaria, this land of outsiders and heretics. And he befriends this woman who nobody else wants anything to do with because of her sins. And they get to talking, and Jesus asks her at one point, do you realize who I am? And she says, no, I, I don't know. Who are you? And he says, I am the one who can satisfy all of your deepest longings. 
fully and completely and forever. And he points out to her, he says, you've been looking to fill this void in your soul through relationships with men, but it isn't working, is it? It isn't working. You always think this relationship will be the one to fix what's messed up inside of me, and it never works. And so you go on to the next one, and then that one doesn't work. And at this point, this woman realizes that Jesus is a prophet. And so she says, hey, you know what? I've always wondered about something. Maybe you could answer this question I've always, I've never known who to ask, and now you're here, so I'm going to ask you. She says, we Samaritans, we worship on Mount Gerizim, but you Jews, you worship down in Jerusalem. So who's right? You know, settle this dispute, this debate. Answer my, my question for me. And Jesus tells her, listen, there's something a lot more important than where you worship. And what's more important than where you worship is how you worship. And he says, God is seeking true worshipers. True worshipers worship him in spirit and in truth. And this woman, she hears this and she says, well, that sounds, sounds good, but I'm still a little bit confused. I guess I'll just wait because we know that when the Messiah comes, he will tell us, he'll sort out all these questions for us. And Jesus tells her there in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. And that woman, that day, she believed. And she went into town, and she started telling everybody she could find about Jesus and her encounter with Jesus. And it says that many of the Samaritans believed because of her testimony. What does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? Well, the worship in spirit means that you're concerned with the spiritual reality of who God is, rather than being focused on, on the outward physical trappings of religion. It's about relationship with him, a spiritual connection, a relationship with God. What does it mean to worship in truth? Well, on the one hand, it means to worship in sincerity, with honesty, truly, not as an act or a show for other people to see. It also means to worship in truth. It means to worship according to the truth of God's word, what he's revealed to us, what he showed to us about who he is. So how do we enter into that kind of relationship, that kind of transforming relationship where we worship in spirit and in truth. Well, the first step is that you have to be born of the spirit. In the chapter right before this one, we read about another conversation that Jesus had with someone else. And he told that man that day, he said, you have to be born again. The man said, what do you mean born again? And Jesus said, no, 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 not physically born again. You need to be made alive spiritually. And the way that happens is that when you believe in me, Jesus said, the Spirit of God works within you and causes you to be made alive to God, born of the Spirit, alive spiritually. And when that happens, Jesus explained, as you put your faith in him, the Spirit of God awakens your soul and brings you from spiritual death into spiritual life. That's the first step. That's how it begins. And then in truth and sincerity, you receive the truth of God's word and you submit yourself to it. And as you do that, in spirit and in truth, God transforms your life. He begins changing you and transforming you into the person he wants you to become. Friends, the, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died and rose again so that we who are dead spiritually could be made alive. The reason Jesus went to Samaria, it tells us something about how God feels about us. It tells us that God, as we said today, God is seeking people like us with a history of sin and animosity to worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He lived a life of perfect obedience to God. 
He was crucified and died, not because of his own sins, but on our behalf to take the judgment for our sins. But that wasn't the end of the story either. He defeated death. He rose from the grave so that we who are dead spiritually could be made alive to God and know him in spirit and in truth. And as you live out that relationship, worshiping in spirit and truth, you will be transformed. But know this, God also wants to use your life to bring his transforming love and power to others. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.